Hey everyone, welcome to Gods of Eden. Today's guest is Bryce Michael Wood. I was introduced to Bryce through his platform, For Your Discomfort. And For Your Discomfort is a platform that looks to provide an education through observation of conversation. And I hope I've got that wordplay right. What I found with the platform was Bryce had managed to build something in a time where the world was mourning the death of George Floyd. And I say the world because of just the grotesque nature of what was videoed that for that eight minutes and 46 seconds. And not only that, but we were experiencing a global pandemic and there was a lot of emotional and mentally taxing circumstances that we were all going through. But I think being able to provide a voice for black men and women at that time I love the way that he went about hosting these conversations and providing just a safe space for people to vocalize how they were thinking and feeling. The episode I'm just incredibly proud of in in full transparency. I just found the way that he portrayed his story was something that even I got lost in it during the interview, which is obviously quite strange for me to um experience as a host slash producer at that time and i'm just incredibly grateful for his time and energy and please go check out for your discomfort i do believe that there there is value in every single episode and i do mention that in this episode that um they're incredibly informative incredibly educational and they are symbolic of how great bryce is and it's no accident that the episodes are as valuable and consistently valuable as they are. So I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Please go show Bryce some love, show him some support. And let's get into this. I'm going to steal Bryce's intro. It feels very apropos. So three, two, one, step into the room. Hey Bryce, how are you doing? I'm good. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. Let's get into it because I know you're busy and I really appreciate you taking your time out. So the first Let's question, I have the Guards of Eden sound, soundtrack, which is a Spotify playlist, and it is each guest gives me a song that reminds them of a happy memory or makes them feel good. And I was wondering, do you have a song that you kind of go to to make you feel good or something that you look back and go, oh, that really reminds me of this really great time? um yeah absolutely first off thanks lucas for for having me and reaching out and being so supportive with the show and everything that i've been doing over here it, it doesn't go unnoticed um my a song that makes me happy and it's not linked to a specific memory but a song that makes me happy is definitely when doves cry by Prince. yes yes so good <laughs> so good so good oh man i'm a big prince fan so that's oh, like hit, that's hit me right in the heart. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Well, that's gonna live on there now, and I love it. Um, starting out as a young Bryce Michael Wood, were you born and raised in Arizona? Yes, born and raised Phoenix, Arizona, South Phoenix. Uh, people don't. I'm not gonna give the address address, but I no. grew up on a beautiful lane, and it was called Beautiful Lane. Oh, I love it. What was yeah. a young What was a young Bryce like? Um, you know, a young Bryce was very much too grown up. I was, I was very, uh, grown up as a little kid, as far as how I spoke. I think I thought I was an adult 
when I was young. I was an only <laughs> child, and I think it's because my parents talked to me like an adult mm-hmm. that I sort of operated like an adult in adult spaces where I was supposed to be a kid. So, <laughs> <laughs> got me into a lot of trouble, Luca. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, for sure. One yeah. thing that I read up on was your amazing mom. Yes. She um she was the founder of a the Black Mothers Forum in Arizona. Yeah. yeah and yeah. you spoke about speaking at a pro I want to say it was a protest or a rally that was going on in Arizona not long ago. What was yeah. it what was it like growing up with what I'd imagine was an amazing mom, but even better just a female role model that she used her platform and can you kind of talk to how great she is as a woman? Sure, yeah. Um my mom, um, I, I always describe her as Wonder Woman um, <laughs> because she literally has done and will continue to do all of it, everything. She can do it all. Um, she, growing up with her, this was kind of like how it went. So she started off, she was like in insurance, but she thought she was going to be a lawyer. So like that was happening for a little bit when I was younger. Um, then she became the chief of staff to the mayor in phoenix and so then she got into local you know government at the city level um and then she decided to run for governor um i want to say my senior year of high school going into my freshman year of college and uh, she almost won like it was it was so random it was so random it was so random but that kind of gives you sort of that's who, that's the woman I was growing up with. And then on the flip side, she was also uh, a minister. And we ended up leaving the church that we were a part of. And then she set up something. She set up a church called First Watch. And it was in the streets. And it was for, for essentially homeless people. Like we would go set up tents, uh, bring food, and we would have church in the park and like just invite a whole, you know, all the homeless people that were there. And uh, I was doing that around 12, maybe wow. 12 or 13. So, And it was like just me and my mom and her friends, you know, and, and people that, you know, believed in, in what she was doing. And she, you know, started a whole organization. We, we ended up buying like a house, kind of like a halfway house to get people off the street and, and transition them back into, you know, getting a job and paying bills and then like get them to be able to buy their own house. But that's just a little, that's just like a little taste of like the kind of uh, woman I grew up with as a, as a role model. She really taught me the value of caring about people uh, the most because she just cares about people. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I know you would go to college and kind of take this up, but you're, you were a um, big track and field guy, right? Growing up. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What did you enjoy about sports growing up? Because I know you kind of went into a fitness profession, but what did kind of sports give you growing up? You know, what's funny about how, you know, the first the question you asked us before this is the person I probably looked up to the most was my dad oh. um, because he he's from Jamaica mm-hmm. and he went to college in the States on a track and field scholarship and, you know, almost made it to the... Mm, I don't remember, maybe the 96 Olympics, he'll, he'll correct wow. me whenever he hears this, but he, he <laughs> you know, he was going to do that and, you know, separate an injury. And then, you know, then I came along and like family and life, but he's definitely the reason I got into sports. 
um, as far as the person that kind of encouraged me. To, and I just wanted to. He's, he's a track coach now. He's a college track coach now. And I grew up with, you know, going to practices with him at whatever high school he was a coach at. And I, again, I was always like this little kid in like sort of grown up spaces. So even just mm-hmm. hanging out with high school kids and like their practices and, and stuff like that. But look at my favorite sport growing up was American football. That ah. was my jam. That was my favorite thing. Uh, and I just knew I was going to the NFL. So, like, what team did you support? Oh my gosh! I mean, I'm from Arizona, so the Arizona Cardinals. Uh But growing up, I I ranged. I think the first team I was a fan of was the Denver Broncos because of my grandpa Uh uh, Tommy, because he was from Denver. Uh, And then when I was able to make my own decisions, I think I started rooting for the Ravens because they won the Super Bowl in I think 2000, and that was the first Super Bowl I like took in as a kid. Like understood what was happening uh-huh. uh, and i just loved ray lewis and was like i'm gonna be a middle <laughs> linebacker and that's i'm going to the nfl to play for the ravens uh then i started to lean out a little bit and got faster yeah. uh and then i started to like uh chad johnson aka chad hey. uh he became one of my favorite wide receivers to watch so then naturally i became a Bengals fan <laughs> um and then in high school, I calmed it down and just started rooting for the home team. Yeah. Uh, we started to catch some steam. Maybe it was 08, uh-huh. 08 or 09, Steelers, Cardinals in the Super Bowl. I'm trying to, I think it was 09. Yep. Um, and then I was like, okay, okay, I can I can root for the home team. We're not, we don't suck. <laughs> uh, and I've been a Cardinals fan ever since. I love it. I'm a big NFL fan. Like, yes. ne- like nerdy. So I am a Patriots fan. So, you know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. That's so it, Cam Newton. Yes. The jersey. So my Cam Newton jersey is at the post office now. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I ordered it the the day they finalized the contract, and I guessed his number. I think he's gonna wear one. So I'm kind of hoping he wears one. Otherwise, yeah, my jersey's so. gonna look a bit crazy. So because <laughs> I did the whole like put your own name, but put his name and then number one on yeah. it. But um. Yeah. Yeah, so I've and then I played a season in college. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, what I mean, position? it's I. <laughs> so the funny thing is, I'm five seven, on a yeah five seven is like real height, um, and I was super big. They put me on the offensive line. No is, way. Yeah, so wow. it um, I mean, British college football's like, I mean, you'd put like an American high school team against us, and we'd we'd get pretty beaten pretty heavily. I feel like so. You've oh got my. to like compare the standard, but it's um, yeah. I went to play center, and my hands were too small when it was raining, so I was trying to snap and then block a D tackle. And my, but yeah, so they moved me around, so I became like all over the offensive line. But yeah, so the typical. I started like, off on the offensive line. Really? That's where I started. I was a big kid. I was a very big. I grew fast. Uh, I was tall early. Mm-hmm. And like when I was a little kid in like Pop Warner, probably like around nine or ten, I was just a bigger kid. Like I was like a chubbier, <laughs> tall kid. Uh, and then once I started to gain some athleticism, they started to move me around, and eventually we landed at wide receiver and free safety. Oh, yeah. so all the action! I love to hit. I love to hit, Lucas. That was my my favorite <laughs> part of football was the contact. So I wasn't juking people. I was like running into them <laughs> once I got the ball. Like yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that, man. Yeah, I um, yeah. my first Super Bowl I watched was because I only took the Patriots up in like 2012, 
So the Eli beat them that year, and then I've picked it up properly after that and took the Patriots then. But the first Super Bowl I remember kind of seeing was the David Tyree one. So I think that was like 07. Oh, wow. With the helmet yeah. catch and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, NBA and NFL are like, they're two big sports that are kind of probably like my two favorite sports. But well, basketball and right. American football, but leagues. I don't yeah, know yeah, college yeah. stuff, but um, massive, yeah. massive um, tangent. And I apologize for that. But um, <laughs> no, it's totally great. Uh, but you asked about you asked about track. So yep. grew up running club track. Uh, was blessed to have my dad as a coach, a blessing and a curse. Because <laughs> uh, we were just always uh, less father son, more coach athlete. Right. Um, and he, you know, track specifically outside of football just taught me the value of hard work and consistency and what it means to be disciplined. Because I didn't have your normal childhood because of track and field and how serious me and my dad took it as far as like the national international level and being ranked always and like having goals of like being the best and you know uh i was a high hurdler 110 like the 110 highs you know all the way through through college god bless you man hurdling that stuff does not look fun <laughs> it's the best <laughs> it's the best you have to be a special athlete something that you spoke about that i found really interesting you were saying growing up although you grew up in a community that was like predominantly black you went to a school where there was a lot more white people how did you find how did you find what i'm imagining is just like such a like juxtaposition of cultures in the two places that you spend the vast majority of your time like growing up as a kid um as a kid i think you just adapt as a Mm. kid i think you're not really you know thinking you're not looking at it critically, you know, yeah. you're just uh-huh. existing in, in the two spaces. So while you're, while I was doing it, I don't know that I was ever cognizant of like, how is this making me feel? You know, I just yeah. kind of would roll with the punches. What I will say is I think sort of the great middle ground was the home I grew up in, right? Mm-hmm. Like just having my mom and my dad there um, because they, they provided a good balance for me to understand like who I am where I come from, these are your people, but also this is uh, how you need to be in order to be successful in this predominantly white space. You're one of like, I, I, could, I was talking to my dad about this maybe right before I left to come back to New York, but I could count on my, my I can count on one hand, you know, the amount of black people that were in my class, you wow. know, moving through the school I was in. There was me and my friend Baird and this girl Kimberly uh, and then I think the grade below, there were two Camerons and like, that was, that was like, that was it, you know? And, and I still know their names. I know their faces to this day because subconsciously you always look to people that look like you. And, um, we didn't necessarily, I mean, I was best friends with Baird, but that didn't, we didn't all necessarily hang out, but like, you know, that they exist and that they're there. But I would say the bigger, the bigger, uh, struggle if you will or the bigger thing i noticed coming back to my neighborhood um because i was you know different from everybody else in the neighborhood just based on how i spoke and how i dressed even and how i acted so once you get into like your uh teenage years you want to be accepted and start to fit in and that's kind of when i started to figure that out yeah see it's so funny right because in my head because i do i do my best to do that when i'm kind of thinking of the questions to kind of think like oh it might if that was me how would i feel 
And I was thinking that you were going to go the other way. So you were going to say like school was kind of a bit, you kind of, you maneuver around and then you kind of get home and there's like a sigh of relief and a, an exhalation of just like, oh, I'm back home. But do you remember what age you were when you kind of started realizing like, oh shit, like because I've been at this kind of predominantly white school, it's actually kind of alienating me as a small part when I get home. Yeah, I, it was probably, honestly, I'm not saying name I haven't like said in a long time, but mm-hmm. honestly, like my, my cousin, his name is Keenan. Um, he didn't go to those kinds of schools, right? Like he got to sort of stay in his lane, so to speak, mm-hmm. and like go yeah. to the, the, the more public schools in, in our neighborhood. And um, he hanging out with him was sort of like my smooth transition. Uh, uh because he would like just straight up call me out like bro that's not cool or like <laughs> why do you why do you talk like that why what are you doing right now yeah. uh but he never he never made me feel bad you know what i mean he never made me feel like i didn't belong or that i was different or weird he was just like this is what's cool this is what's not cool right. so it was less about this is how you you know this is what black people are like it wasn't that because obviously mm-hmm. i am black but it was more about just like he he was a smooth transition because I would ask him, I'd be like, why do people make fun of how I talk? Or like, why isn't it cool to be smart? Or mm. like, wh- like, you know, like, why do you get all the girls? Like, why do girls keep talking to you so much? Like, and I'd be like, cause I don't know. Cause I'm like, I take school very serious. Like all these things. <laughs> and I kind of had to, I learned from him. Um, and I would, and not even just asking questions, I would just watch. Mm. Um, which probably led to my my acting ability today. I would just watch and mimic and be like, okay, this is how I should walk, talk, sound, present myself uh, so that A, I'm taken seriously and B, I'm not made fun of. But the first experience I had, Luca, was at a Pop Warner football practice in my Mm. neighborhood, South Phoenix on the South Side. We should also talk about why black people are always on the South Side. Another topic for another day. Yeah, right. (laughs) Another topic for another day, but I grew up in South Phoenix on the South side and like my Pop Warner team was like, we were called like the South side, like South uh-huh. Pop Warner. So anytime we played anybody else, they're like, here comes the South side, <sighs> only black kids on the team and it's yeah. just black and Mexican kids. But that was like my first, like kind of just getting thrown into the water. Uh, I guess I was like 11, maybe of just mm-hmm. like, my dad just dropped me off. My mom and dad just dropped me off. All the people and I was like, like, this is the most black people outside of my family, obviously, that I've just been, like, I'm just here now. And yeah. uh, everybody's talking different. I can't really understand everybody. And everybody's looking at me like I'm an alien, talking <laughs> weird. But sports definitely helped me bridge that gap because then I was just gifted. And people were like, okay, it doesn't matter. He, he can, he could play or whatever. So it's fine. Yeah, I, um, that's the thing. Anybody that I know that, like, grew up in sporting backgrounds, I. I think growing up and playing in team sports or playing in any kind of sport where there is like an element of team is it does give you a fresher perspective on the world. Cause once again, like you said, it's like, we don't really care how you look. We don't care what, like what you do in your spare time. We don't care. A lot of the things we kind of let go and it's like, can you play? And if you can, are you like a kind of a good dude to play with in terms of pause, but in terms of like in the sport, but I always feel like it, you have a fresher perspective on the world. And I think it gave me a lot growing up as a kid, like playing team sport and in terms of just culture integration and kind of giving me a deeper understanding of the world, even at like a young age, like you said, maybe you're not conscious of it at the time, but now I go, Oh, okay, cool. It was just, 
you know, I played team sports with like, you know, that person and it kind of gave me an insight into that kind of lifestyle or, you know, yeah, I just, it's always intrigued me. And I kind of thought as someone that I look at what yeah. you've built now, it's, I'm imagining it's had a big impact growing up. Absolutely. If I feel like it's, I will always give sports almost 90% of the credit for everything for the person that I am. Mm. Um, and that involves everyone that has supported me in it or, you know, was a coach or, you know, my parents and all of that, but like sports, the discipline that comes with it. Um, but also just the ability to adapt in the moment, uh, the ability to have a short term memory as it pertains to keeping like the overall goal as what's important instead of like these little plays in between getting to the goal. Like as long as there are points on the board and as long as we have a W at the end of it, we'll work on the rest. But look, we got the dub as a group together, figured it out. So yeah, I, I, I will all like sports without sports. I'm not the actor. I am. I'm not the activist. I am. I'm not the son, boyfriend, any of that, you know? Yeah. I love it. And you've mentioned acting. You, um, yeah. You then go to Notre Dame. I'm going to, English people are going to hate me pronouncing it that way, but I am going to use the American pronunciation. But, um, <laughs> Instead of Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say Notre Dame and you went and studied. There you go. I want to get this right. Was it film and television? Uh, eventually. It was actually oh. um, marketing. Uh, I went to be a business major. Uh, and then oh. towards the end, Whenever we get into that story, then some things started to started to shift, uh, and then I ended up minoring uh, oh. in film and TV. Yeah, That's yeah. the thing, right? That's a really big difference between England and America when it comes to college. Is that we kind of go in, and although you can maybe manipulate it along the way, like early on, it's kind of like really you go and study one thing, and then it's just like, dude, you're locked in. You you've got options, and <laughs> but it's like. Because I went and studied fitness manager and personal training and just hated my degree. I ended up dropping out, but I kind of realized that I was more into writing. I kind of wanted to do more journalism. They didn't let me because it wasn't in the scope of my degree. But right. So that's a big thing. But anyway, you talked about acting and it's something I find really interesting. Do you know when you kind of picked up that? Because I don't know how, because it's something I've never got into. I've got no idea like how the the passion is born, how it's kind of right. curated and... So when did acting come like become a big part in your life? And do you remember like what it gave you early on in life? Um, acting became a big part in my life, literally at the university of Notre Dame, uh, um, around like age, what was that? 20 maybe. Uh -huh. Um, but I will say my mom reminds me always now that this is like my actual, you know, career path and passion that when I was younger, um, I was in like show choir and I was always like a jokester and like always center of attention. Like that's what, you know, if I was getting sent to the office, it's because I was like a whole stand up comedian in class. <laughs> um, and she reminded me like at the after school programs, I would literally have like a mix CD, put it in like the boom box, get on a stage and like just perform for them. Uh. Nobody asked me to do this. I just did it. I just was like, this is what I'm doing for you. Um, fast forward, um, sports happen. I don't care about any of the, the artistic stuff anymore. <laughs> uh, and I'm just like, I'm just like a jock and a student, like right. full time, just like mm -hmm. books and sports, books and sports. So I let that go. Um, then you get me to the University of Notre Dame, uh, pursuing a marketing degree on a track scholarship. And I need to take a fine arts 
you know, credit. Like, I just need to get my oh. fine arts credit uh, elective. So um, I think I had taken, like, a theater class in high school. It was fun, and it was, like, easy. So I was like, cool, I'll do that. Here, get an easy A. <laughs> and um, we did a two-person scene on camera in front of the whole class for one of the projects. And then the professor afterwards pulled me aside and was like, you should do this. Um, you should come audition for like my play. And I told him, no, you know, like, <laughs> no, I don't have time for that. I'm on, you know, I have to practice every day. I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in this. Yeah. Uh, and then he told me he'd give me extra credit. And I was like, start with that. I'll obviously do your play <laughs> for extra credit. Like, what do you, absolutely, I'll do your play, you know? So I audition, I do it. I fall in love instantly because, you know, people were laughing at what I was doing. And, <laughs> It finally felt like the right place to do it. It was appropriate. I was like, oh, mm. this is where I can be like this. This is where it's appropriate to kind of let this other side of myself out in a, in a productive way and not uh, a disruptive way. Um, that was cool. Anyway, um, <laughs> I love, I love wordplay. You have to know this. But, um, 100%. Yeah. That's where. Um, I didn't really take a whole lot of acting classes because uh, it was hard to really like just switch up the degree because uh, it was my junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we decided to do a minor instead. And so uh, I took a class called our audition seminar. That was it. I oh. took an audition seminar class and one like acting 101, I think. And I did a lot of student short films. And then the faculty there really, really encouraged me to audition for grad school for acting. Um, which is expensive, but they actually ended up helping me, you know, pay for all the things because they believed in what I could do, which was great. Shouts out to theater department at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you for seeing something in me that I couldn't see in myself. Uh, I, I go audition for these grad schools, get a full ride to the University of Connecticut, and still, Luca wasn't really passionate about it. Was just kind of I just kind of wow. showed up to see. I mean, it was paid for. I was like, all right, I don't have to be an adult yet. I'll just uh, go to some more free school uh, and uh, see what's up. And so that first year was great. It was fine. I learned stuff, but it wasn't until that first summer at a theater that I worked at in Cape Cod, Monomoy Theater, with the director, Francesca James, who's like an an Emmy-nominated, Emmy-winning, like, daytime TV director. Uh, And she directed... Summer stock theater for fun, I guess. I don't know, but she's great. <laughs> she didn't have to be there, but she was, and um, she challenged me in a way that reminded me of sports, I think. And mm-hmm. um, she opened my eyes to a lot of what acting could be. And uh, she's always gonna kind of get that that nod, whether she knows it or not. Like I'm always shouting out Francesca James's name because without her, I'm not this. Without her, I'm not passionate about the craft. Because then after that summer, I went back to my next two years of acting grad school and was like locked in and like wanted it all. And like I needed I needed to to have all of the tools um, to, to be as good as I could be. And uh, fast forward, I'm in New York, signed, and uh, I've been working and it's been great. So when I think of Notre Dame, I think of a really strict religious college. And it's, I don't know. But is it a? It's also a super white college, right? Is from yeah, what I've seen. Yeah. Because um, yeah. we've spoken about American football, so I think of the the fighting Irish team and all of that, all of that stuff. Manti Teo was there. I won't get into that. Hey, I now, mean, <laughs> my guy though. I was that we were there at the same time. He's a, he's yep. a good guy. That's a great yep. guy. 
yeah. yeah. How did you find what I'm assuming was like quite a, I'm going to say strict from just a real kind of naive perspective and real like, I guess ignorant for a lack of better term in terms of my perception of the college. But um, was it like a typical, what you heard was a typical college experience? No. No. I, no, not even kind of. I grew up, uh, <laughs> I grew up uh, 15 minutes away from Arizona State University, which was always voted like number one party school in the nation yeah. when I was yeah. growing up. <laughs> so I thought college was something very different than what Notre Dame was. And I think strict is appropriate. I think a um, lot of rules, a lot of, there were just a lot of things that you had to comply with in order to be a student there and stay there for sure. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself as fighting Irish or a Husky? Which one more? <laughs> fighting Irish a thousand percent. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because it's because I played sports there. There's no way yeah. that I could ever actually be a Husky. And I've said, I said that when I was there, so I don't feel bad about saying it. Now. <laughs> um, my, my, my best friend, Kayla McBride, she was on the women's basketball team at Notre Dame. And now she plays for like the Las Vegas Aces. Aces? Uh-huh. Yeah. She's in the WNBA. And uh, so I went to every game, every women's basketball game. And those were like their rivals, UConn yeah. and, and uh, Notre Dame women's basketball specifically are rivals so th- she felt betrayed that i even accepted a scholarship to go there i was about but, to say um, uconn is like the women's basketball like sanctuary right in terms of just how the good so it's, it's 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 uconn no it's notre dame <laughs> uconn and baylor yeah and like stanford and like oregon now with Sabrina, uh, and right? maryland yeah yeah, yeah yeah but um if you ever if you've ever watched uh women's college basketball Notre Dame and UConn are always number one and number two interchangeably every single year for infinity and beyond. Like, that's just what it is. But I like it. You stuck with the, stuck with the original college. I like it. Oh, that, it's because I competed there, man. I got oh, yeah. my letter. I got letters there. I'm on the wall there. Like, so many dope things. Yeah, no. I didn't even watch. I didn't even watch UConn sports when I went there. I was always watching <laughs> Notre Dame games. I love that. Uh, just man. out of, I was just being petty. Like I just was like, no, no. And I had like, I was a TA, and so some of the, you know, some of the athletes were like students of mine, and I was like, mm, don't care. Fine. <laughs> who was um, okay. who was the big women's basketball player then? Was it Brianna Stewart? Was it that that group? No. When I was there, mm. she yeah, like my first mm. year, she was still there. Yeah. Uh, and then I think she she went to the league after that. But they always have. I mean, all of them, all yeah. of them. Gabby Williams, uh, who was a student of mine. Um, that's the only one that's coming to mind. But literally, just they always get like the top recruit every time. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, can you explain the journey from UConn to New York? Because that was like one part of your journey. I was like, I don't know how you transitioned oh, yeah. from from there to there. Sure. Uh, we at the end of your third year, you have uh, for all MFA programs, MBFA programs, uh, Masters of Fine Arts, Masters mm-hmm. of Fine Arts. Um, you have what's called a showcase, and I won't say for all, but a lot of them have what's called like your showcase. And uh, essentially, what it is is you have the opportunity to go to New York, Chicago, and LA in front of uh, industry professionals, and it's essentially like your final thing like your final project 
and there are potential implications, right? Of like maybe getting signed or cast in a show or at least get an audition. So um, we had our showcase in 2017 um, in New York City. I did two scenes with two different classmates of mine in front of a, you know, just a theater full of agents and casting directors and stuff. And um, I was, you know, I was very blessed. I will say I was, I was very fortunate to have sort of the feedback and the response as far as interest come my way. And uh, I'll kind of leave it there because, um, right. yeah, I don't want to talk like that. But okay. needless to say, I had a showcase. I eventually, I was signed within like uh, two weeks of that showcase. And then I was off to the races in shows and auditions. And it's a crazy life, I promise you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was just one thing that when I was when I was like trying to piece your journey and set the timeline in yeah. my head, I was like, I get Yukon and I know it's kind of close to New York. So, but I was like, I didn't yeah. know for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. A quote of yours that did really stick with me. And it was on your website that as I was researching, it just kind of like stuck with me and it kind of stayed in my mind for a bit. I kind of want to read it back and just kind of get your, your thoughts on it slash speak to it a bit more. But you said, my personal goals as an artist in the theater in theater are to inspire the next generations of artists to redefine their craft and continue to want more from their craft. As an African-American actor, I have an opportunity to change the landscape of theater for all artists of color. Can you speak to that mission and why that's important for you as like a representation of kind of what your mission is with acting? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think... I was in a very, that's so funny. That was, I literally wrote that in 2017 and never looked back. <laughs> um, so I was in a very specific, specific headspace then. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still rings true now, but I think for different reasons. I think my urge and desire to redefine comes from limited representation in theater and TV and film as far as what the world sees as like a black actor which sucks but like that's how we're even you know described we're not just actors you know we're black actors yeah um and you know for the longest and i love all of the people i'm about to say but for the longest it was like will smith denzel washington jamie fox like samuel jackson um viola davis angela bassett like uh jada pickett smith the queen I think, you know, Martin Lawrence, like the, the list kind of goes on, but not really. Uh-huh. Um, and that was kind of a lane. And then you would see others come up under them and kind of fall into a lane. Like, are you a comedian or are you more serious? Are you just a sex symbol or do you have more to offer? And like everybody kind of just fell into a lane. For me, like there was a lane, there was a very specific lane forming for me. And um, while I was grateful for that lane, because people paved it, you know, before me and I'm happy to be here. I want to always continue to expand and, and show more, essentially what, what I've been doing on this show. I, I just want to show more from, from my perspective and, and more, and, and I want us to want more from it. Right. I, I want us to seek to be viewed in a different light or seek have a different approach to get the same result. I don't know. Like, when I wrote that, I was so in it, Luby. Like I was so yeah. like, ah, I am about to bust on the scene. I'm kicking down doors, and I am changing how Black people are viewed in theater. 
And now that I've gotten there and been able to work with so many beautiful and wonderful artists, like I'm seeing it, I'm seeing what I wanted. Mm. Um, and now it's just about everybody else seeing it. You know, I think I was like, it doesn't exist. And like, no, it exists. It's just not promoted. Mm. We exist. We're here. We're just not um, touted. We're not uh, sought after if you're not a name. You know what I mean? Like there are, and I don't want to go over the statistics, but there are so many new white faces on TV and film all the time that aren't like famous or like recognizable that there are more white actors, specifically white actresses, than there are just black actors in general. Like unless like we know kind of who you are, have seen you before, you're really not, it's going to be really hard for you to get that gig, right? Like that, that high paying, Mm gig unless you're a part of that a or b class celebrity group it's going to be really tough whereas for white actors and white actresses like i don't know you get thrown in there i'm like cool cool cool, great never seen you before and you're talented i'm not going to ever be like they're not good uh i just see it i just notice it yeah i um there's so much that that branches off of too um i know there's so much yeah no it's great it's just but i mean i'll say it there's a lot of like lifetime mediocre white actors and actresses and you never seem to see that with like black actors and like you've mentioned will smith denzel jamie fox viola davis like it's like you have to be like super sensational and like be super multi-talented like like you said they do kind of want to pigeonhole you but it's like will smith has to be like a great actor rappers like all these different things right to be like the the dude and because it's limited space and it's like you have to be extra talented to just be above the like mediocre white dude like that's had a whole career like made millions of dollars and this this like you know i'll say an actor but like this guy's just like made a career off being the dude like he's just the guy and it's yeah yeah that's kind of i think that's probably why it stuck with me a bit more because that kind of was where my train of thought went but and it's really strange as well because although you said that was kind of the space you were in then with theater, it's kind of almost the, verbatim the mission you've ended up going on and it's just taken a different form of theater in terms of for your discomfort, right? Yeah. Really, in the grand scheme of things, it's like that you want to show that you want to redefine these labels and show that, you know, there's more nuance to the black experience than there is just like what the media want to portray. Yeah. I do want to get into one thing, which is Soul Cycle. Um, hey now, yeah. I uh, so we've had it here a year, I think. I think we've had it a year. I've been there. I've really enjoyed it. But my first experience was in Boston when I was there. Um, but one thing I noticed, and it was something that I found in, I once again found intriguing with Tremel, and I want to kind of get your idea on it. It's a largely white customer base. How did you find it early on as a black man and, you know, proud black man and you go in and it's a lot of white faces in there? How did you find it early on? Uh, well, I I don't, I need to actually ask you about this, but I don't, I started off as front desk, right? So okay. I, I was a front desk employee. Um, that's I was totally happy being a front desk employee because I was in New York to act. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was fine with my part-time job, but in, I was in Tribeca, which is, you know, a, a very wealthy, very white 
area and you know just being in that space i was the only straight black man in the building uh, on a given day just all the time right. like that's just what it was so it was it was interesting but it wasn't you know you know my journey now yeah. so it wasn't yeah. anything i hadn't encountered mm-hmm. before so i i was kind of used to it i think something that i wasn't used to was class the you know the class of a person that takes the soul cycle class that can afford a soul cycle class in very specific neighborhoods um and sort of the privilege that comes with that and that's like regardless of your color that's just mm-hmm. like a tax bracket thing yeah. um uh so that was something to, to learn but once i became an instructor speaking to that is you know sort of what Tramel was talking about i just think it's very hard to feel like you're going to be successful in a mostly white space based on the stereotypes associated with your outer appearance. Um, it's very hard to initially, uh, once you're thrown out into the market, be comfortable in your own skin because you're thinking about marketing yourself a certain way, making sure people come to your class, making sure people stay and making sure people come back. So it, there's, as a black man in those spaces, it's just an interesting thing to navigate. Mm. Uh, as far as just being comfortable in your own skin and you uh, eventually you get there you know but it's it's not easy when someone comes up to you before a class and it's like hey you're not gonna play that rap are you and you're like okay um <laughs> probably but like there's other stuff like or mm. uh, you're not gonna play like it's not gonna be super loud right like i took this other instructor or they'll just you know i said so i'm insert black instructor's name that's not me i yeah. took somebody's class I took so-and-so's class and they played a lot of rap and it was loud. Are you going to do that? And it's like, um, okay, no, mm-hmm. I, maybe I, why does it, what are you doing? This is my, mm-hmm. you don't have to be here. Like, don't, you know, it's tough. It's tough to be yourself and be successful or think that you're going to be successful being yourself. I'll put it that way. It's tough to think you'll be successful being yourself in a predominantly white space, especially in the fitness industry. Yeah, and um, it's that class thing again, right? I think that class, if I'm going to generalize the person that can afford to do that class on a consistent basis, they're more than likely going to be, there's going to be a level of entitlement that you maybe wouldn't get with another class. And there's probably going to be a level of, I'll say blissful ignorance for a lack of better term. Like the fact that because you're paying that amount for a class, they can maybe feel like they talk to you a bit crazy like that in terms of like in my head that's a wild thing to just come out and say to someone to say are you just going to play that music like for me that's very wild so i think maybe that speaks to the class as well as obviously the racial kind of connotations that come with that but um I wanted and to there's a there's a there's a flip side to it too. You know, there are also people that just come to your class because they assume you know, in a positive way, they're like, But you are gonna play that, right? Like I'm <laughs> here because I expect you to play that kind of music. It's it's double edged and not everybody's like that. I've I've only encountered someone doing that like once or twice. Uh, and it was the same person. Um so I'm not gonna be out here like all oh, so cycle people are like that like no. <laughs> not the case at all. So cycle's great. They're and they're growing. Yeah we're growing and everyone's learning and, and trying to be better. But I, I'm hoping that with everything that's kind of come out of this season, that mm-hmm. um, when I do go back and enter into that space, once again, that it's, what's the word that is not even progressed, but willing to, 
Mm. I don't expect anything overnight and I don't want it overnight because that's nothing is built overnight. I don't want, um, I don't want you to pitch a tent with like straws. Okay. Take the time, you know, weld the metal, uh, get, get like, let's get this right. Um, but you know, don't just like quick fashion together, like this quick thing to be like, we did it. And I'm like, did you? <laughs> so that said, I, I, I'm just ready for it to, to be open to yeah. the change. And I know they are like, we've, I'm in talking and everything's cool. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I think it's that's the thing. It's only because you work for Soul that we're saying Soul. It's like that is like the we call it in here in England. I don't know if it's the same terminology in America, but like the boutique fitness industry, where it's yeah, yeah, yeah um, is in it's it's definitely not kind of company specific. It's you know it's industry specific more than anything else. But yeah, um, one thing that you spoke about in a for your discomfort episode. I can't remember the specific one and it was it's something that's never crossed my mind and I think it's wildly interesting and I think it's some well it's it's wildly interesting to me and I think it is for other people and it's this idea of the fetishization of the black man in, in the fitness industry um yeah. and it's something I you spoke about it so like eloquently and I I don't want to even really kind of try to put words in your mouth so I'm going to let you kind of explain it but can you speak to it and kind of, I guess, maybe the realization of when you realized that it was a, a, a real thing when you were kind of teaching at Seoul and just in the fitness industry in general? And how has it shaped your perception of the industry as a whole through that lens specifically, I guess? Sure. Um, I would say I first noticed it as a front desk employee, mm-hmm. um, whether it was me you know, specifically, like people literally assumed I was an instructor all the time, um, like all the time. They were like, are you teaching next? And I'd be like, no, I just <laughs> like say, hey, spread the shoes, clean the bikes. You know, like, <laughs> I just work here. They're like, oh, you look like, and you know, I'm in shape. And, like, I yeah. get it, you know, I'm an athlete. So I, I didn't ever count it against anyone. But I noticed it then. I would notice it with, you know, specific black male instructors that would come teach when I was working front desk and the clientele uh, that would show up for, you know, that instructor's class. And it was like literally all just like women, specifically like white women, all ages, ranging all ages, getting, you know, done up, wearing their best, wearing their best. And um, I remember asking that instructor afterwards, like, what's this about? Or like, do you notice this? And he's like, of course, of course I noticed this. Like, it's the only reason people come to my class and I'm like, damn, like that's, mm. ah, like to, to, to know that is like one thing, but then to like accept that is another. But p- personally, I think I realized it when I had, uh, you know, a community ride and nobody knew who I was yet. I, I hadn't really been on the schedule yet. And all they had was a picture and my mm. stuff sold out, you know, like people, <laughs> people were there. And um, I didn't think about it then. I just was happy. I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know why this happened. Yay, like, <laughs> lucky, so lucky, you know, like, wow, what are the odds? But then realizing sort of, like, consistently after I got on the schedule, like, the, the clientele and the comments and, uh, you know, where people's hands want to go and, like, mm. all of those kinds of things and, like, offers made and DMs and all these different things. And you start to realize, why people are in your room mm. why certain people are in your room i'm not gonna say like to any of my writers that yeah, are like yeah, yeah. eventually just became my writers i know that's not why you're there mm. 
Mm. Um, but it's very apparent when those people are there for that reason. Um, and it's, it's just obvious. There's no like real way to say, like there was a moment when I was still front desk where I literally like a whole, like someone offered to be like a whole sugar mom, Mm. like a whole situation. I was like, what? (laughs) And they were not shy. And they they were blunt and it was like, I was like a thing, you know? Oh. And it was weird. It was weird. Yeah. I was like, whoa, really? Oh. Really? Are you serious right now? And because I was like broke at the time, I, you know, I was like, well, and I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> oh. oh, that, yeah. Yeah, when you're but broke. it crosses it crosses it crosses all you know it crosses into any athletic mm. anything just like the you know Michael Jackson Jr. we had on was a dancer yeah and we talked about it in his you know like just mm. the black male physique for whatever reason is fetishized like yeah it just it's, it's a thing yeah I um yeah I do remember the episode now and it's it, yeah it just it took me back because so although that I don't know you super personally i've kind of you know been able to make my you know judgments and assumptions i guess kind of through these conversations that you're having and i promise you we're getting there i just you know you're you're a wildly interesting dude i kind of wanted to cover some of your backstory but as someone that really is in my my personal opinion i appreciate it may be a bit uncomfortable for me you maybe to hear it but as someone that's intelligent has this great moral compass great character I guess, how do you find it being judged purely on the perception of, you know, your physique in that case? Um, of course, in the grand scheme of things, the color of your skin, but this idea of having to realize, like, I'm this, you know, I'm well-educated, I'm well-spoken, I'm kind, I have this moral compass, I, I have this perception on the world, which I, is really engaging for someone to, like, get to know you. And to just be judged on your appearance that way, like how did you find that when that realization came? Um, devastating. Um, that's that's my word um, because uh, when I had that realization, it really split the world in half. It split the world in two. It was like, okay, um, no matter what I do. Uh, I'm going to be black and seen as black and, you know, taken in as black and received as black and understood as black and black, 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 right? Like it it Mm -hmm. really, it matters, sure, Mm -hmm. but on a very small level, all of the things you just said about me, which I appreciate, but it, it, it matters. It seems to matter very little, all of those things when my appearance and stature come into play. Um, being a you know muscular black man with, um, and I'm not even using all of my voice, but if I were to speak with my full voice with a deeper, mm-hmm. bigger, powerful voice, I'm perceived as a threat. So even if I navigate around those things and make myself appear smaller and, and up the pitch of my voice and, and overly articulate, um, it doesn't really matter mm. for some people, a lot of people. Um, and I'm, you know, hoping that that change, but my word would be devastating. It sucks to know that I can be as edgy. I can hold two degrees 
uh, I can be kind and all the things you said and still be completely judged on sight. Yeah. Yeah. Or like have people be like, wow, you're more articulate or wow, I didn't realize you were going to be this like kind or, oh my gosh, you're so much more well-spoken than I thought or whatever the case may be. Yeah. It's really funny. Steph Curry said something like this like really recently being like, it shouldn't be a surprise to to white people that are like, you know, a person of color is like well-spoken or intelligent or kind like this that is still a point where someone goes, wow, you're, you're really well-spoken. And it's like, yeah, dude, don't sound so, so surprised. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like what, what gets me is just like <laughs> someone being well-spoken has nothing to do with the color of their skin. No. Has everything to do with where you grew up and like the education you got, the sounds you grew up hearing, like what you value yeah um there are so many other races white people included that don't sound that aren't well spoken do you know yeah that aren't overly articulate in fact that go out of their way to be less articulate in order to be quote unquote cool but yet as a black person specifically like there's really no lane you get to pick that's like fine yeah 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 sorry it's just yeah to to hear that is just like wildly profound. It's almost Ugh. a bit challenging as a process, but um, I am going to take us in a slightly weirder direction, as weird as it sounds, because we've spoken about soul. We're about to speak about for your discomfort, but something that I've really noticed about what I guess you as a person in terms of what I've seen from afar is that you have this unique ability to bring people together for a purpose that's bigger than themselves. And it's a trait that, well, it's the very like foundation of why I've wanted to build this podcast on is speaking to people that have that trait in some form of capacity. Do you feel that's a fair assessment of who you are? And is it, is it something that you've had that maybe it's a trait that you've just kind of accidentally had kind of growing up? Or do you feel like maybe as you've kind of grew up and, you know, matured and found who you are more of as a person that you've kind of just developed this ability to, and I say it because... We're about to speak about for your discomfort. I think it really represents that, your ability to bring people together for a bigger purpose. I think soul cycle in an element is very similar in terms of you, you're you asking someone to work hard for a purpose that's bigger than just that 45-minute class. And it just seems like something that's kind of been a running theme of like, especially the your adult life in terms of working in acting, I feel like it's probably very similar, the you've got to commit to something that's bigger than you in terms of the production. But um, do you feel that's a fair assessment? And yeah, how, would you say that's something that is just naturally you kind of growing up or that you've kind of worked on it growing up? Um, thanks for saying all of that. Um, no my, I think I want to say before, before your discomfort even happened, it's what's mm-hmm. funny is me and my dad, when I first got home during this season, yeah, he talked to me about that. We talked about, kind of the kind of kid I was growing up and always um, bring it literally what you said, like bringing kids together, like kind of cultivating a a little group or bringing kids together that really would, wouldn't otherwise be hanging out or have any reason to know each other. Um, And like he said, that's kind of like a trait of mine. 
Um, and this is literally before Four Year Discomfort even started. And I think he was commenting on, you know, my ability to grow yeah. class or like just, you know, walk into a room and like be fine with whoever's there. So from that standpoint, I think I've always been comfortable mm. bringing people together. Um, but I don't know that it's been a conscious yeah. uh, thing like it has been now. Like now it's so conscious that like this is what I'm doing but I've never even viewed it that way and so you kind of put it that way I just I, I want I want them I, I want the conversations to happen and when I'm reaching out to people and, and, and FaceTiming them when they answer and um, talking to them I'm thinking about okay like who where do I want what would who would you um, and again it's not like a whole conscious thing it's just happening it's just like I don't know what that is, but it's it's being it's it's been developed throughout this season. Mm. Um, but I would say it's it's something that's been innate as far as bringing people together that wouldn't otherwise have any reason to speak. Mm. That has happened my entire life, but it has not been active like it has been in um, in this season. Yeah, um, super interesting. We're finally at for your discomfort. I'm sorry it's taken us this long, but. but a platform i really love it seemed i don't know if this is true but was it an evolution you had been doing a monday motivation series on instagram like a couple videos that i saw do you feel like for your discomfort was kind of like the evolution of that and would you say that like where was that idea born from in terms of the monday motivation which was like a an igtv series that you had started prior to the murder of George Floyd and what that ended up becoming? Yeah, I mean, someone brought that to my attention. Uh, They were like, oh my gosh, this is literally what you had been doing, but for a cause. And um, that's what it was born out of. I mean, uh, Jonas, who was in part one, he was up next for that uh, following Mm. Monday. Um, But then George Floyd happened. And I remember... I didn't even call Jonas first. I should have hit him up first, but I hit up Tramel and Mike because they had already been on Monday Motivation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, guys, like, I, I really want to do this. I want to have a conversation, right? And I want to call it for your discomfort. Mm-hmm. Like, it just came to me. I was like, I just, that's what I need to do. Um, are you down? They were like, we're down. And then I was like, okay, let me talk to Jonas to see if he's cool with us not doing his, like, his own personal segment. And he was super down because he knows mm-hmm. them already um and yeah i just didn't feel motivational that particular upcoming monday right so we had that conversation instead um and it just you know blew up um the reason i was doing the monday motivation um was once covid kind of was set into place and we had to quarantine um you know i was like let me do something like my writers we're like, where are you? Like, are you going to do online classes? And I was like, mm. okay, like I'll do something. So I had like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday mm. and Wednesdays, like an arm day. Fridays was like, you know, core and abs or something. And then Monday was Monday motivation. And that was honestly my favorite, you know, part of the week. If I'm being uh, completely honest with you, I, I really looked forward to motivating people in this season where everyone was so like down and discouraged. And I think people forget what that first like month was like. Like that first month was scary, uncomfortable. People are just at home that aren't used to being at home and like jobs are being lost and lives are being lost. And so uh, it's sort of in the spirit of SoulCycle because there's a motivational and inspirational aspect to SoulCycle. Like Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to figure out how I can continue to bring that. Um, and it started with Tramel. And then I realized after Tramel's Monday motivation that this is also like, it's, it's giving people uh, the ability to get another another side of their favorite instructor, right? Yeah. So, or their, you know, their, yeah, their fitness influencer. Um, this is giving them another side. Um, and it's also giving this fitness person the ability to motivate themselves um, in this moment and to speak on things that they hadn't realized until they said it out loud. Um, and so it was healing for everybody. It was, it was definitely about healing what Monday motivation was. Yeah, that's how I would kind of sum that up. Yeah, yeah. Um, firstly, For Your Discomfort is fantastic name, by the way. Like, <laughs> Thanks. It ended up like it's super symbolic and like super it it just feels part like the perfect name for what it is now become can once again i feel like you're going to be far better explaining this than me can you explain to people that maybe haven't heard for your discomfort what is for your discomfort what was it born from and what is the intention of it as a platform sure for your discomfort is a series of much needed conversations that relay the perspectives and varying experiences of, of black people. Um, it was born out of the George Floyd, Amy Cooper week, that pain, that exhaustion that I felt, I had never felt it before. Um, it was born from the video I posted on Instagram where I just screamed out white people as loud as I could. <laughs> and this kind of gave a piece of my mind in a way that I never had because I had always been so conscious of protecting a brand and an image and like all of these things that I simply have stopped caring about. Mm. Um, for your discomfort is, you know, people really gaining a passion for people and, and knowing that they don't have to be perfect in this, but that they must be present. It's something I've always said and I'll never stop saying. Um, it's education through observation of conversation. I, I, I believe that it is an incredible way to learn. That's it. I, I'm, I'm providing are hoping to provide a safe space in order to elevate the voices of those that have been unheard and underrepresented, mainly black people. And, you know, that'll uh, eventually expand. It's just, I'm very passionate about the black voice right now um, in the season we're in. Rightfully so. First of all, I co-sign with everything you said in terms of it's a phenomenal way to gain an education on the conversation of race, but also me as a white man I like I cannot see the world out you know in terms of I can be empathetic I can be understanding and but I will never see the world through the eyes of a black man or a black woman like it's just impossible right so for me it's like it's just being able to take the pressure of having to think of the right thing to say for me or having to be conscious about how I th- how I phrase things and I get to just sit there and go right I'm just going to learn for this hour yeah. hour and you know whatever time length it is I've just got to sit down really listen it's almost there's like a meditative element to it because it's the one time in those two weeks that I really don't have to think about what I'm doing outside of just going listen that's all and right. you know you've provided just phenomenal guests but i want you to speak to the idea of i believe it started on a did it start did it start on a monday or a friday it did it started it it started on a monday no yeah yeah, it started on a monday and then the following one was friday you get to monday let's say you get to 30 minutes before you go live with part one 
what's going through yeah. your mind and how are you feeling about what you're about to get into? I'm freaking out because <laughs> um, we I, we had so many people. Um, I wasn't ready for that. Nobody was ready for that. Up until then, like the biggest Zoom call we had was like maybe 35 people. So mm-hmm. the fact that there was a uh, morning of, by the morning of over 500 people and counting and like I was, it was all via DM and like a Zoom account that didn't go over 500. And like, I wasn't like, I couldn't even really, we had our, we had like a pre-combo earlier. Mm. Um, but 30 minutes before people were still literally like in my DMs, like, I want the link. I need the link. Can I get the link? So like I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off. There was, and then I, and then we just hopped on Mm. and uh it started and i was still getting like my phone was like going crazy and, like it was still buzzing and like people were like i didn't get it i'm not in and i'm like i'm not knowing what to say to them i'm yeah. like I'm, i see people like I, I thought everyone you know and then we find out like there were over like 700 people or something like that yeah. so honestly 30 minutes before when i should have been in like a very like whew, <laughs> nervous saw here we go I was actually just like, is everybody like, are people going to get in? What is this? I didn't know this was going to happen. I thought we were going to have like a hundred people stop. Like yeah. me, Tramel, Mike Press and Jonas combined, we'll have like 100. And uh, that was not the case. But once I, I would say once the call started, mm. that was when it all kind of set in um, and our intentions and how we wanted to go about this. And I think we added miles like that day. Mm. And then like Makia, yeah. I found out about her like the day before and it was just like a lot happening. Uh, yeah. So yeah, 30 minutes before it was just like chaos. I was like, <laughs> what is, what, what's about to happen right now? Um, And then it like kept growing. It wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't like episode one happened and then there was a drop off. It was like, no, 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 we're, we're on, this is inclining. It's going up. Yeah. So how have you found having to like, just work everything out under somewhat of a duress, I guess, in terms of being like, God, I've got to like, you know, you've first of all, you had the piece of the place of mind of being like, yeah, I better record these like just in case. Cause now they're podcast <laughs> episodes. Like just yeah. that alone is like great that you've managed to work that out. Cause now you can listen to all the episodes on Spotify, Apple, Bryce yeah. has a website and we'll plug everything at the end. But, um, yeah, how was it like dealing with the growth as well? So you do one episode and then it's like, uh oh, this is like getting bigger and bigger. Just learning and growing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the perfect season for it. I'm just yeah. at home, but it was overwhelming. I'm not gonna act like it wasn't like an overwhelming space to be in, but mm-hmm. I think the mission outweighed like the pressure. the The goal outweighed any any other pressure. So. Mm-hmm. You know, now we've gone down to every Friday at twelve thirty, just to sort of manage, yeah, um, and like, and and really be able to focus on the conversations, um, and building them in a way that is uh, constructive and helpful, uh, as well as the people joining, like making sure everyone's like good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, I think it, it would have been easy to crumble, um, but <laughs> I, I had help. I had the help of about two or three people mm-hmm. uh, that I can count on, and now I have like a little mini team. Uh, as far as like social media marketing administration type stuff so and a lawyer shout out to my lawyer now yeah um uh, as far as business is concerned mm-hmm. but 
it was it was overwhelming but I, I think the mission and the goal outweighed any potential pressure yeah i um this is a question the i'll be perfectly candid it's actually like it's not specific to just you but it's specific to i guess a lot of black people a lot of people of color in this season um how have you managed to preserve your own emotional well-being sanity and you've had to experience you know COVID-19 and everything that comes with that you've had to experience Amy Cooper and that situation with Christian Cooper you've had to experience the George Floyd situation and then you're now being leaned on by people like me white people as a platform for education how have you managed to keep your own sanity your own emotional well-being in a, in a place that's good for you as the human being that's had to process everything that you've had to process whilst being leaned upon as someone that's like you know you've built for your discomfort and we just want more and more and more um god prayer mm-hmm. um i'm not shy about my faith and my belief yeah. i'm a christian so like mm-hmm. prayer and god on site like that's number one um Number two, I have an amazing girlfriend who supports just however she can. Uh, my parents support, uh, friends and family support. Um, and outside of that, dropping down to once a week has really uh, helped preserve me as far as attention to detail and really putting my all into the conversations happening because the turnaround time was crazy mm. from Friday to Monday. Like that, yeah. that weekend that weekend time spent prepping for Monday was costly for everyone involved. And I'm so grateful for everyone that was a part of those because they were obviously powerful conversations. Um, But I think for me, just taking care of myself, dropping down to at least having the conversations once a week. I mean, things are literally happening all day, every day. Um, But having the entire week to prep for a conversation um, has really fed me uh, as far as my energy and, and my passion for this project, because there's just more time to get to know people. There's more time to prep. There's like a formula that is working. And um, I love that I can breathe more life into the one conversation yeah. than breathe a lot of life into one conversation and then like make it happen again in three days. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just something that really crossed my mind because you're having these highly emotional conversations in some parts especially early on when the George Floyd news was as raw as it was. And I've described it as an earthquake that really like the whole world felt. And yeah, I just, it's something I'm very conscious of and wanted you to speak on just your own preserving yourself. Yeah. I think um, everything happens for a reason. The order of my life Mm. is very specific because this is what I had to learn how to do as an actor night in and night out, if I have uh, a tragic scene, which I've, for whatever reason, I'm always in those or my characters always go through some sort of tragedy mm-hmm. and being truthful in those moments and in those spaces to like go there, feel those feelings, mean it, and then process it that night and then wake up and be fine, mm-hmm. which as fine as I can be is a muscle that is, you know, you can't just do that all the time because not healthy mentally and emotionally um so i'm just thinking about this right now but i've been blessed to have to learn how to process very real very honest raw emotions 
daily, truthfully, and be healthy at the same time. Yeah. Um, which is what you're describing is the same way people feel about performers or mm. people doing a scene on camera or being interviewed. People think it just happens naturally, and uh, there's always a level of prep, and there's always an emotional, physical, spiritual, mental toll that mm. is taken. Yeah, completely agree. What are your hopes and dreams going forward that you, you're comfortable sharing in terms of for you personally as as Bryce Michael Wood, whether that's in acting, whether it's in the platform that you've built? Like, where do you see your life, I guess, going in this like near future? Huh. I mean, it just took such a... Sh- I mean, COVID really shifted a mm. lot of trajectory, if you will. Yeah. That said, you know, uh, I believe that you know, Bryce Michael Wood will be a name that people know, mm. um, regardless of what I'm doing. And I think I'm going to leave it at that. Like, yeah. whether that's acting, whether that's the fitness world, whether that's as an activist, whether that's, you know, my own talk show, put it into the world. Yeah. You know, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, I just, not even what I hope for, just what I feel. And what I know is that Bryce Michael Wood will be a known name. Uh, worldwide for a variety of things and uh, I'll leave it at that I hope that doesn't sound like cocky I just it's something that is starting to happen Um, and it's a feeling that I've had uh, and I never knew what that would look like but it's starting to shape up in a very specific way I like it no I'm cool with it I'm cool with it um right because I know I'll forget and this is kind of something I've set a habit throughout the the seasons of Gods of Eden I want you to plug everything that you've got going on right now. Shameless plugs, shameless plugs. And then we've got the final four questions, which are, although they've changed and evolved, they are the questions I ask every guest for to fight, to finish the episodes. All right. Uh, shameless plugs, uh, at rice nose on all social media platforms at for your discomfort on all social media platforms go to foryourdiscomfort.com to donate we need money because yeah. uh, we're not working um we will be having a fundraiser like within the next week that is oh. going to fund brand new content actual like quality stuff oh. uh that i can't wait to start to highlight some of these people that we've been talking to in a more uh cohesive more uh coherent more personal way than just a, a live Zoom call and then their voice on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had like an acting project, I'd, I'd put that out, but I don't because they're not happening. Uh, if anybody wants to make something, hit me up. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Thanks, Bryce. Right. Final yeah. four questions. They have slightly evolved, but these four questions are loosely have been asked by answered by every guest. And... They're slightly deeper questions, believe it or not. So this is kind of my way of finishing up. But my this is the new one for, I guess, season 3.5. I recorded five episodes pre-COVID. We're still in season three, but it's a time delay. But this is the new question. Um, if I was to give you a megaphone that spoke to the entire world and you could share one message, what would it be? It's not about being perfect. It's about being present love that great um number two what's your biggest personal struggle that not many people may know about right now uh my biggest personal struggle is saying no to things there you go 
Number three, what are three personality traits slash characteristics that you would say you've built your life upon up to this point? Um, progress is a process. Mm-hmm. Um, love, love without expectation. And if it's for you, it'll be yours. Amazing answers. I'm a really big fan of all three of those. Um, <laughs> this is the final question. It used to be the one I used to get most uncomfortable asking. It's now actually my favorite question. But the last question. Many years into the future, your time as Bryce Michael Wood is coming to an end. The person closest to you only has one sentence to describe you and your time here on Earth. What would you hope that would be? He loved with every bone in his body. Oh, God. That's so perfect. I love it. Bryce, I'm super appreciative of your time. I know that you're very busy. Please, anybody listen to this, please go listen to For Your Discomfort. I promise, promise, promise it will be an hour of your time that will open your mind and change your perspective or give you something. You're going to benefit listening to one of those episodes. That is like, and I don't even have to pick a specific episode. I know that you can go random lucky choice and just go bang. And I promise you that what Bryce has built has They've really resonated with me in a major, major way. And I truly believe in what you're building, Bryce. I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm going to stay a fan of yours. And this has just been beautiful for me. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm, I need to like listen to everything you've ever done because now I'm a fan of yours as well. Dude, check the Tramel one out. It's long, but I promise you that episode was amazing. Like that. I'll check it out. Thanks, Let's say man. goodbye to everyone. Peace out. See ya. One love. <laughs> White people. Step into the room. <laughs> <laughs>